Brought to you by Brass and Unity. We make wearable conversation starters. Our new buddy check packs are available now. Grab one and check on one of your closest buddies. They may need it now more than ever. Go to brassandunity.com, use the code UNITY and get 20% off. And let's all heal together. And brought to you by Combat Flip Flops. Bad for running and even worse for fighting. Combat Flip Flops are your ticket to the unarmed forces by providing you with military-inspired quality footwear for men and women. To help support the podcast and in support of women in developing countries, head over to combatflipflops.com and become a part of their unarmed forces today. Be sure to use the code UNITY at checkout and get 25% off. And brought to you by GFDA. Good fucking design advice. The voice in your head and the foot up your ass. GFDA makes prints, drinkware, and apparel for people who want to do their fucking best. Go and use the code UNITY and get 10% off now on anything on their site, including our collaborative product, Fucking Help Somebody. And brought to you by Daisy May Hat Co., the custom hat company based in Nashville, Tennessee. They make custom one-of-a-kind hats from wide-brimmed fedoras to cowboy hats. All of their hats are 100% beaver felt, and it's the highest quality hat you can get. They also have the coolest shirts ever. You can use the code BRASS at checkout for 15% off your entire order. Go and check out daisymayhats.com. Embrace the fever. Live the dream. So I was saying to Bruce McKenna before we started recording here that he's got a lot. He's got a lot. There's a lot to cover with Bruce McKenna. And I'm so glad that you could join us on the show this week because you are one of the most prolific, well-known writers I would consider in our day and age for film and TV and just writing in general. So welcome to the show. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because you and I met in a very different way. I, I, I've known about you a really, really, really long time. That makes you sound old. You're not that old, but I've known about you because I've, I grew up listening um, and watching the films that you've worked on projects you've worked on and not really understanding the back end of who you really were. And when I was on the phone with our, our really good friend, Neil, Neil McDonough, he, when he asked me the question, who do you want to write your show? That's a war writer. Who do you want? I didn't, I didn't miss a beat. I didn't skip a second. There was no hesitation or stutter in my voice. I went, Bruce McKenna. I went to the biggest, baddest war writer there possibly is. And then he hung up on me. So really? yeah, because then he called you well, and then he called oh, me he back called 10 me. minutes later. And yeah. then he called me back 10 minutes later. I was like, you have Bruce McKenna. And then I died. So that's fun. Yeah, well, Neil's yeah. a force of nature. He's terrifying, isn't he? In like the best yeah. way. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Um, so yeah, let's get right into it. You, you've been involved in some serious projects that are known and are going to be known and are really what the miniseries are developed like and around now. You were the setting of the example. Band of Brothers in 2001 was the example for everyone else after that. And really what I would consider one of the main reasons actors stopped doing just film and stopped looking down on TV, they started seeing TV as something bigger than just a one episode or a couple episodes a season. When you did the miniseries, that's when things started to change, in my opinion. What even brought you to Band of Brothers? Like, how did that even start for you? Well, I mean, first of all, I think, I think it's probably more, um, not more accurate, but just to add to that, it was HBO. That right. really revolutionized, and the people wanted to be on those kinds of shows. And HBO was the first network, as it were, that said, "Okay, let's let's do limited series that really matter." 
Um, I came to the band because um, my manager called me. You might know him, Andrew Tannenbaum. He called me and um, he said, um, there's, they're doing this thing over at, at, um, at HBO called Band of Brothers. And I knew the book. I had written a World War II script already that, and tried to sell it um, about Navajo code talkers. So, and I'd been a, you know, a World War II sort of geek for a long time, including in, in high school. Where, and so I just, I just had to, you, I begged, you got to get me a general meeting. So I went in and met, met, met somebody that worked for Tom Hanks, um, told them how much I wanted to be on the show, what I knew about the war, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, oh my God, they're, you know, this guy's a maniac. And so they said, well, we'll get back to you. And then they got me a meeting with an executive at HBO um, named Anthemopoulos, who was the executive sort of running the day-to-day -day for Playtone's company. Tom Hanks's company, Playtone, was producing it with uh, Steven Spielberg. And so I met with her and I begged her and I begged her. And then I met with, they brought me in again. They gave me the Bible. I said, which episode would you do? I must've been four or five meetings where I'm like, I just got, a, and I just was a pain in their ass until finally they, they gave me the episode that nobody else wanted to write. So that's how I got on band. And the cool thing about band is that most of us were not well-known writers. There were a couple, but most of us were, newbies or, or, you know, really passionate and younger. Um, so which is kind of cool because it's not what you expect to see in, in big expensive television. Um, yes, so especially I'm, with my HBO. hat's off. Yeah. My hat's off to, to Playtone and HBO for hiring a bunch of, of neophytes as it were. And, and, you know, we've all done well and, and, it, and it was a gamble that paid off. So, but I begged, literally begged my way onto that show. Good. So, and, and refuse to, you know, take maybe as an answer. So. See, that's why I think you and I get along. I think you understand who I am a little bit. I feel like there's yeah, a tiny part of me in you. <laughs> OCD, batshit crazy, and we just <laughs> don't know how to stop. Yes, so, there is no stop yeah. button and there is no slow yeah. down. Um, there is no, what's, what's Andrew say? It takes time. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. You're lying. It doesn't take yeah, time. It's the hardest People are lazy. thing in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, it's the Hollywood worst. Is not, it's not a place for the patient. No, it's definitely not. And and for someone like you, especially, we'll bring it back because you've had an interesting history prior to writing in, in anything in 2001, like you said, before you really kind of sparked. And what I found fascinating was kind of learning a little bit about your childhood and your background, because do you come from a military family? Nope, I don't. Okay. My father never served. My grandfather, my father's father never served. My mother's father was a medic, an ambulance driver at the end of World War I, but did not see combat. He got there right at the end of the war. And my uncle, my, my mother's brother was in the Navy at the end of the war and patrolled around San Francisco Harbor. So not really. I mean, you know, if you go far enough back, yes, I have several ancestors that fought in the Revolutionary War and in the Civil War, and you know, but um, so it was. It was. It was not prevalent in my family. It was not a narrative that was presented to me the way it is for a lot of people. Um, I had nobody that was cl I was close to that served in World War II, and so my wife likes to joke that I must have been a draft dodger in several previous lives that I've had to atone for. So, 
Well, I wonder because when I look at that, when I look, when I look at your education as well, I mean, what you went to school for and kind of what you studied, there's, there's something in you that has an interest with, with the wars. There's something in you that must click because why else would you, I wouldn't say suffer, maybe suffering is the wrong word. Why would you suffer in education and schooling for so long and diving into the nitty gritty of the politics and why war happens and, and all of this, if there's no real string or tether to it? It's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just, it's just one of the great mysteries of life. I, you know, it could be just um, temperament. Um, okay. I once had a, um, a Comanche shaman bless me and tell me I was full of lightning. So I'm just full of lightning. And so, you know, it was the way that I just, I get the discharges by writing about it. And ever since I was a little kid, um, I was known for having a really bad temper and um, I would get so mad at my brother that I would hold, I'd hold my breath until I passed out. So I always had a nasty <laughs> temper. So I guess it's the, I was drawn to the, uh, you know, the sort of experience of it in a way that was, I made it feel really personal. I don't know. I don't know. But I've, I've never you? been interested. What? Who taught you to hold your breath until you passed out and thought that was a good idea? Oh, that's a, that's a self-taught skill. That, oh, okay. That's, oh, yeah. That's, you know. <laughs> That's an active, yeah. But no, I think it's, um, it is interesting. And the other thing is I'm not interested in the military the way that most people are. I don't, I still to this day, I can't, what's the difference between a battalion and a regiment? What, how many companies are there? What weapon is that? I, I just, it doesn't matter to me. What mattered to me was the moral issues that the war brought up. And it's, for some reason, I always um, been drawn to that. And when I was 17, I wrote my junior AP history paper on the common soldier of World War II, which is not a common, people didn't do that in the 70s and early 80s. Oh. Right after Vietnam, you know, was not a, a my, and the teacher was like, what are you doing? You know, and so I interviewed my milkman who was in the Wehrmacht. He was a German paratrooper who fought against Easy Company from Band of Brothers, ironically, directly. I mean, so it was kind of a really Whoa. cool. Yeah, I tried to, I tried finding him and talking to him during band and he had just passed away oh, i no. talked to his son but yeah he was you know he was in the he was in the german paratroopers and and um at d-day and he was in holland and and all kinds of crazy stuff so and then i interviewed a um, a bomber pilot a b-24 pilot that lived down the street from me so i was interested in sort of the moral issues not the technological or strategic stuff that most knucklehead geeks that love war follow i, I just I, I still don't really I mean, I know it, but it's it's not what draws me to the, you know, to the medium. So, not the pool, anyway. The, yeah, it's not the pull. The pull is sort of to, to write about the sacrifice and the moral costs and the the bravery and the brotherhood and you know all the stuff, the grist and muscle and blood that really matters, as opposed to to individuals. You know, mm -hmm. so. You ever look back at that and realize that Band of Brothers was kind of meant for you when you legitimately had I knew someone? it at the time. <laughs> I knew it at the time. It's never gotten, you know, it's not it's, it's kind of sad in your career when the first real big thing you do is that's it, you know? <laughs> no, but when you look back at that and that was your mailman and he fought and it just happened to be easy, like that, the, that timing, yeah, nothing in life. Oh. Yeah. No, no, I agree. It was very interesting. And, um, you know, you recognize that, that, you know, there are wheels and wheels within wheels and, you know, that the universe oftentimes is a very interesting place. So, ah. yeah.
I'm starting to I'm starting to understand that a little bit more now with things. But to hear you also uh, have experiences like that, that's a that's a that's one that's really hard to say was coincidental. It just happened to be the one company that had the most prolific thing that you've ever really well up until you know you had Pacific after that, but really the the one thing and to have to have him be a part of your life at that age and not even realize it. Did you did you always want to be a writer once you? started writing later into your high school years and you started writing that paper around 17, was that something that came up for you or did you have other plans? No, no. Desire to be a writer when I was young at all. Um, I went to, um, I went to college and majored in history. I majored in Russian history. Then I went to, and I failed at a bunch of stuff. And like most writers, I'm a product of a bunch of failures. And, um, you know, which is builds character and you figure out what you don't want to do in life as opposed to what you do want to do and struggled. Mm -hmm. And and then I was in a PhD program in, in Russian history and and just dropped, hated it. So I dropped out of that. And and then I needed to make, I needed to sort of grow up and make, get serious about life. So I love movies and, um, and I love history and I needed to make money. So I'm like, well, I'll be a screenwriter. So... <laughs> That's that. kind of feeling. I just was about to get married, you know, and as soon as I I did, my wife got pregnant, so I had to support her family and you know, so I just sort of I fell into screenwriting and you know, but but not I mean I I always love movies. I love and I most of what I do is historical drama. So Right. Um it, it makes sense when you look at it from the back looking into the past, when you're there, it's like what the hell is he doing? You know, so and it was hard. It took a long time. For me to break in and, and quote be successful I you know people still ask me that when did you know you'd made it in Hollywood and my answer always is well when you find out that I'm successful please call me you know because I don't I don't believe in success I don't believe it's real I don't you know it's just doing work just do the work so that's really interesting to hear from somebody who has 51 Emmy nominations well my shows, not me. But oh, I'm yeah. oh, I'm so sorry. The shows that you were a big part of, that I made if successful. I were Tom, right. If I were Tom Hanks, I, you could say that, but I'm not. So I'm just a okay. schmuck that you know wrote the wrote, wrote the Jarens and the split infinitives. So Tom Hanks is successful because of individuals that write amazing things that are really awesome that get turned into amazing projects. So I think you hold just as much weight in that. That's my opinion, and I can say it because it's my show. So well, Tom and I can have an argument about it. Just, just send them my way. We'll argue uh, about sure. it. Okay. <clears throat> but it's true. There's, there's a lot of work you put in. You've put in an exorbitant amount of time into writing things that have had a massive impact on generations after generations. And I think will continue to because of the significance. And I think that nobody really writes unless uh, writes about something unless they're truly interested in it. and I think that's the difference between you and maybe other writers right you're, you're writing because you enjoy the topic yeah yeah well it's not that I enjoy it it's I'm compelled to write about it when and you then, say compelled you know, explain that I just I don't I can't I just can't I don't understand what it is about war that that drives me to write about and it's it's defined my my entire career and it's you know, so I try oftentimes to write about other topics or, you know, I'd love to write a romantic, you know, comedy or, but it's not what I'm good at, you know? And so, um, and you do get typecast in Hollywood, as you could probably imagine. So every war project comes across my desk 
So you, you know, and that can narrow you. And I, I do other things and, and have done other things and will do other things. But it, it is something that, you know, and, and now it has to be something that really pulls at me in a way that where I explore the phenomenon of war in a way that I haven't thought of or I haven't done before. Otherwise, I, I just, I'm, I'm not interested. Um, but it is a compulsion. And maybe it's, you know, maybe it's the warrior in me that never got fulfillment in, you know, because I was too much of a coward to join or whatever it is. I don't know. You know, so um, it, it's, it's something I don't spend a lot of time thinking about anymore. I just, I respond to it and I do it. And, but now I make sure I do it in a way that feeds me creatively and makes sense for me from a professional point of view. I just, I just finished rewriting a script for a producer. It's a independent, small independent movie about women, female guerrilla fighters in the Philippines in World War II. And you know, that's, a, that's never been done. No one's ever really showed women in war where they're not victims, which of course they're the number one victim. Women and children always suffer more than anybody else during war and they're never really, they're sort of in the background. They're the stakes of the movie or the show, you know? And so it was really, really interesting to, to explore the journey of a young Filipino, um, half American, half Filipino woman um, who becomes a stone cold warrior and fights for her people. So that's an example of, you know, so I was drawn back to World War II in a way that I'm like, well, I've never done that before. No one's ever seen that before. Let's do that. And so that was kind of cool. Um, you know, and uh, various other projects that, that I'm worked on or, or dreaming of that, again, explore aspects of it that, that I, I just, I didn't realize or didn't know. The, um, the projects that you work on, you say you feel compelled to do, is there, because you, you're, you did, is it karate, correct? Yes, With, Shotokan. Okay. okay, so you're a martial artist and there's that warrior aspect in that. And what got you into that? Because it seems like there's a pattern here. Yeah. Um, um, I, I went into karate, my, my children did first, so, and, and I always wanted to study it, but I was just too busy or too, uh, you know, whatever. So when my sons went in, my, my oldest son in particular started studying, the whole family did. We all went together. It was really a lot of fun. And then I stayed, and I, and I stayed, and I, I finally earned a black belt in Shotokan from a very um, really, really influential and, and uh, helpful sensei to me. She was a woman. And, and I stayed and, and did it because I, it helped me deal with my anger and my sort of my internal rage and that a lot of men have and, um, and how to deal with sort of a reactive personality and become a better person. So it was a, it was a form of therapy in a lot of ways. And, and you know, I used to, my nickname in high school was Brutal Bruce because I, had a, I would get in fights and, you know, so, and I played sports and, you know, was very, very competitive and, and, um, and sometimes toxically so. So it helped me kind of calm down, ironically. It's the opposite of what you would think. Um, and, and learn how to control myself and, and um, to be a better person. So that's, what, that's why I did it. And, but it is part of a common, you know, I played a lot of sports. I've coached a lot of sports. I did martial arts. I write about war. You know, so there is sort of a, there is sort of a through line there, I guess. Small, so. small. I'm learning about what through lines are. I'm really learning. Yeah. I'm learning a lot yeah. from everyone around me lately. And it's it's interesting when you're watching or you're having a conversation with someone and you understand their background a little bit and you kind of see it. But 
you played soccer as well quite competitively though, yeah? I played soccer in high school and college and I played lacrosse in high school and yeah. college. And lacrosse, of course, is called the warrior sport. I mean, it's, you know, you, it's one of the, like hockey and lacrosse, you have a weapon, you have a stick, you can hit people with it. It's the, the you know, the primordial tool that humans still, it's in the, you know, it's in our brains to use. And, um, you know, I had a lot of fun doing it. And, and, and so learned a lot about teamwork and, and um, you know, it had a huge impact on my life. Sports was much more important to my character and my um, drive than school in a lot of ways. So, Isn't um, that the case, though, with so many individuals who end up being successful in something uh, later on down in the life, whether they're an entrepreneur or they own their own, um, they write, they're a creative, or they work for themselves in some aspect. There's almost always now after doing these for a little bit, you see that sport has such a massive impact on people's individual um, ability to carry themselves through life when things are difficult and to not have to yeah. fall onto someone. Um, so it's yeah. uh, And also, yeah, and all, but also teamwork, you know, and how to, be, how mm -hmm. to play well in the sandbox. The thing that I love about most sports, um, but lacrosse in particular, is it, it teaches young men how to be aggressive in a way that is socially acceptable. And so uh, it's a it's a socializing, um, you know, male aggressions, you know, like all sports are, but particularly stick sports, and mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a reason why you know the Navy SEALs look at lacrosse players all the time because they're they're strong, they're fast, and like Navy SEALs, everybody has the same skill set. That it's not like football where you have a specialized ability and that's it, and you get you have to do it. You have to, everybody has to be able to handle a stick, and everybody knows how to handle a stick, and you know, so it teaches it teaches a lot of skills that are useful in, in the military. It also teaches a lot of skills that are useful in like Hollywood, which, you know, so how to deal with egos, how to deal with, you know, all kinds of stuff. But no, it was it was a really important part of my life, as was my education. I'm not going to downplay that. I oh, thought no. I was going to be a college professor when I was young, but um, really? yeah, that's where I went to grad school. I was getting a Ph.D. in Russian history. You don't do that to go work in Hollywood. <laughs> I listen. That's what I was going to ask you: is, is what was the Russian deal about? Was there an interest because of the Soviet Union, the Cold War, kind of in that time frame? Like, what brought on the the Russian interest? Um. Yeah, I mean, partly it's it was um, the Cold War, which I grew up in. The, you know, the height of part of it was psychological and deep rooted in me. Um, my parents, when I was really young, learned Russian at home in my house in the early 60s. And they would, they would be taught twice a week by this guy that was like the, I don't know, the butler to the czar's uncle or something that got kicked out after the revolution. And he taught them Russian because my parents wanted to go there. And for two years, they learned Russian in the house when I was a kid. And I must have internalized that. And then I like to joke, you know, because writing, you have to be an amateur psychologist that what I basically did was internalize my aggressor. The Russian history is patriarchal. It's about fathers and sons. It's about, you know, and I, I had a very um, contentious and difficult relationship with my father. So I think I recapitulated my relationship with my father by studying Russian history. It's full of suffering and rage and, you know, war. And, and, um, and so I was really into it. And I was, it was, a, and plus, if you're interested in politics, it's the perfect test tube to, to examine what works, what doesn't in ways that are very clear and stark to see, as opposed to, you know, England or um, other countries that 
have more gradual histories. It's much more violent, much more stark. Um, and so I was really into it and um, went there several times and had lots of experiences over there. They're, you know, crazy. And, um, <laughs> and now I have no desire to go back. So, I mean, I, I really, you know, I'm not surprised by what's going on now from a geopolitical point of view. And, um, you know, it's very sad to think of what's happening in Ukraine. But, um, but you know, I was just drawn to it for sort of deep-rooted psychological reasons, some of which I think are definable and others aren't. But, um, and I had a great, great mentor in college who taught that I, I took a quarter of all my college credits with one professor who was a professor of Russian and Soviet history that I really, really liked. And that's like, that's a very similar for anybody in any careers. You find somebody that mentors you, that you want to emulate, that you want to impress, that you want to be like, you know. And you and so you fall into a a career that you know you might not have otherwise done because you really really wanted this person's approval. And that was for me that was also true. From a uh, geopolitical standpoint, like you stated, you said you're not shocked as to what's going on. Um, how so? I mean, the Russian political culture is brutal. I mean, they have no, I mean, they have no civic culture. They have no internal breaks on their political machines. They, I mean, it's a really interesting place that has a high degree of dysfunction over a long period of time. And, and on Putin is, I mean, he is, we're watching a modern Adolf Hitler right now. We are, and, and he'll, he will keep going until he's stopped. And um, so I have no illusions about what's going on. I have no, you know, it, it's, it's, it's sad that we didn't do this seven years ago, um, but we couldn't because of the situation and, and a lot of very, we don't want to bore your viewers, your listeners to it, but you know, it's, it's they're really, a, 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 it's a nasty political culture of might makes right. Um, you know, they've never, they've never been democratic in 500 years. They've never been able to figure out how to develop um, non-governmental non institutions that anchor people so that there are civic roots in a society that, that can withstand pressure from the government. You know, we have a lot of them in, in the United States or in, in the Western Europe in particular. Um, maybe not enough, we'll see. But, um, you know, it's, it's just a very, very different kind of a place. And, um, you know, he really is trying to be like Peter the Great. And Peter the Great was, he was great, but he wasn't a very nice man. So, you know. No, and it, it doesn't I, bore the listeners. I think if anything, it helps because there's been quite a, quite a bit of outpouring asking like, what, can you explain to me what's going on in the world? Because most people don't really understand as to why they think it's, an, they just, they turn on the TV, they see another war. It's so close to the past war. They flip it off. They think there's no association. There's no impact. There's so no wrong. damage. This has so much greater impact than any war that we've been in, you know, really in the last 20 years. If Putin wins in Ukraine, it's going to threaten all of Western Europe in ways. It's going to embolden autocrats everywhere in China and Taiwan, Hungary, in the United States, you know, right-wing lunatics who want to overthrow democratically elected governments. And Putin is encouraging them and working with them right now. You know, so it's a very serious thing that he, we, he has to lose. And I don't know if he will. I mean, it's really, we live in interesting times, as the Chinese like to say. So, yeah. you know, we'll see. 
and um, it's really gut-wrenching. And of course, you know, we can't go in there too strong because we don't want to be in World War III with Russia with a maniac. So it's a delicate balance. And I do think the Biden administration is trying its best to navigate this. And, you know, we could argue about they should do more. We can argue that maybe they should do less. I don't argue they should do less. But, you know, I think they're doing the best they can with a very difficult situation that has to go a certain way and, you know, fingers crossed. I'm always curious and, and I always do wonder, you know, because it's, you can't go back and change the past, but I always do wonder how or what could have been done with a p potential different, different political party or a different political uh, landscape uh, if, if Biden wasn't in and would he have pulled this card? Would he have tried this? I believe he still would have tried it. I still think he would have, I think. He wouldn't have had to have tried it if Biden hadn't won. Yeah. I mean, it would have been, it wouldn't have had to, we, you know, because we wouldn't have supported Ukraine at all. Yeah. I mean, Trump actively tried to screw Ukraine at the time. And he did it, in my opinion, on, on the personal orders of Putin. I think he is, he's a, I think he's an asset of Russian intelligence. I do. I mean, I just think the guy's a disgrace. And I don't, you know, mm. um, and I, 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 I really am, you know, but, you know, Obama didn't stop them in 2014. With Crimea, and, and that, that's part. He, he, he was, there's some responsibility there. It was a different mm -hmm. situation because the Ukrainian army was not very well trained and supplied in 2014. They probably couldn't have, and they might have had these discussions that said it's not worth, you know, ruining Europe over this at the time because we can't stop them, and so they just let them do it. But I, I, I think they could have done more under under Obama. And yeah. you know, nobody's perfect, and and Biden's not perfect, and you know, who, I'm. You don't know if Trump had gotten re-election, what would have happened. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that he actively withheld, like tried to blackmail the guy into getting, you know, withholding military aid, the very military aid that is helping them withstand this, this onslaught by the Russian bear right now. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can't, woulda, coulda, shoulda. You just got to play the right. cards as they're dealt, you know, and that's what, that's what we're doing now had an individual, I have a, I have a few people, a few friends that are on the ground in Ukraine right now. And um, we were having conversations about um, the aid and what it's really looking like and really who are the people that are suffering um, from this. And I had another individual reach out to me who's a well-known source. And he said, you know, that the Russians have moved into the Ukraine and with them brought their own on wheels crematories so that they can either get rid of war crimes or like so that people can't realize that war crimes have been committed or they're getting rid of their own soldiers to hide how many soldiers yeah. have actually died in the past two months in this act of war, which is insane. That's insane. Yeah, it is insane. But yeah, but like, you know, you... they're, they're um, very clever about what they do. And it, it does it does concern me on a on a grander scale because maybe my paranoia number one or number two the fact that it's when you can see someone who's really just mentally unstable and very unwell trying to overtake Europe it's it's so reminiscent of World War II it's so dangerous and so on the edge and he really does remind me of an individual who will hit the the fuck it button when cornered and that person yeah. is incredibly yeah. terrifying in my eyes. Yeah, I know. I mean, and it's what's even more terrifying is I don't think he's mentally unstable. I don't. I think he's very cold and clever. He's a yeah. stone cold psychopath who is not, you know, he's not, he's very calculating. He's very smart. 
and he has been playing us like a master for the last 20 years. And he's used all of our weaknesses against us. And, you know, it's scary because we've fallen right into it, you know, yeah. and, and um, it's really, uh, but I still think the guy is not, you know, he's not that smart. And he really, I think he miscalculated. Oh, and I yeah. think there's a chance that this is going to bite him in the ass. I'm hopeful because <laughs> yeah, what else, because what else will, who else will, who else is yeah. going to take, I just always wonder how is he still alive? Because, I mean, he's enriched everybody around him. I mean, he's made them all billionaires. And, you know, why do you think the Russian army is in such bad shape? Because all those generals are pocketing. They're just selling their stuff to, you know, Indonesia and whatever it is. That, I mean, they, it's, they're all corrupt. And it was oh, like yeah. that under Peter the Great. I mean, he would empower his ministers to take over the fishing industry, and they would just bilk it all. And take, but he would get half the money. That's what Putin's doing now. They, you know, they're just kleptocrats. It's just, you know... And but so they also have people who are tracking his jets and posting it on Twitter. I mean, we know where the guy is sometimes. So how, how haven't we know, hit the fuck it button here with him? I, I mean, come on, come on, Bruce, come on. Because the fuck it button is pretty scary. So, yeah, I mean, look, um, here's the thing. Winston Churchill was once asked why he did not assassinate Hitler in the, during the war, because they knew where he was. And he said, because he was doing a good enough job of destroying Germany that we didn't want to get rid of him. Ah. So think about that. When, when, this, when the CIA knows where he is and they, you know, they could drop a dime on him probably, yeah. well, maybe better for him to keep pushing like this and chew their army up, you know, to kill 100,000 soldiers and ruins. We get to study their tactics and all their weapons. You know, I mean, if, if NATO and Russia went to war, take nuclear weapons out, we'd probably go through them like shit through a goose in about five oh. days. It would be over like that. Yeah. You know, and then everyone talks about World War II. Oh, the Russians, they beat the Nazis, and which is true. They did it with enormous loss of manpower, but they really did it with about 10,000 Ford and, G and General Motors trucks. And they used, you know, American trains, American trucks, American tanks. You know, they had they wouldn't have won their, their Eastern Front without the transportation that was given to them by the American Lend Lease program, which nobody remembers. But of course. You know, so I, I like to remind people of that. Yes, it's true that the Eastern Front was a nightmare and the Russians are primarily responsible for bleeding the Germans dry. But but they did it in American trucks. Don't forget that. <laughs> Don't <laughs> so, forget. We help. people are are learning how important trucks are in this war. You can't win a war without without logistics and without transportation. Well, it's so, no different, and you look at that in any war. I mean, for God's sakes, look yeah. at um, look at the Soviets when they went into Afghanistan. Look who had the advantage. Look at the Americans and the Canadians and yeah. the British when they went into Afghanistan. We had trucks, but now who owns all of our trucks? Yeah. They do well, for the next a, war. That's another, yeah. That's yeah. The next one, right? <laughs> There's always another one. We're uh, we're on like a, we're on a, a spectrum. My favorite thing is when I heard from an individual recently about the book. Well. There's not a lot of war. There's not a lot of uh, interest in war anymore. Are you out of your mind? Have you lost Crazy. your mind? Yeah. No, it never ends. You know, never the problem ends. is, is the interest now needs to, I mean, I really think the interest has to, when I grew up, the interest was because of World War II, it was the interest in how you win. You know, mm -hmm. so when I was a kid, you'd read books about aircraft carriers, aircraft carriers of the Pacific, or, you know, the rising, into the rising sun, all these, you know, it was all about, 
World War II and how we won the war and all the tactics. But now I think people are much more interested in the cost of it and, and the extreme cost of it because before, and you're seeing it now, I mean, even in Vietnam where there's daily images of combat, now it's on Instagram. It's so instantaneous that we can see war crimes as they're committed. Yeah. You know, and, and there's video of, of, you know, it's unbelievable. It's everywhere. It's on people's phones. Mm -hmm. And so I think there, there's two things that happen with that, and which are sort of contradictory. One is we get numb to it. Sensitized. If you're not careful. Yep. We become desensitized to it. But on the other hand, we're also drawn to it in a way that I think is new and, and people realize, you know, the children and women and, you know, it's like, it's a disaster. It is so bad. And, and I think that, the immediacy of this is being hit with people that for Americans, you know, particularly Ukraine, because it's not, you know, a bunch of brown people, frankly, over or in the other part of the world that people are not really, they don't care about. And we're seeing the sort of the innate, you know, I don't want to call it racism, although a lot of it is, but it's more, you know, it's a clan relation. We identify with people who look like us, right? So the Ukrainians are suffering. Oh, now paying attention, you know? And, and it's sad because, you know, look, there's a million people who died in the Middle East from 9-11 you know, to now. And, mm -hmm. you know, so people are, are really starting to think about this, I would hope. And, and wouldn't it be great if, if, you know, like I would love for Biden to say, this is terrible. We're going to defend Ukraine and we're going to rethink our policies all over the world so we don't kill as many people as we have. Wouldn't that be nice, you know? And that's the kind of interest in war that I would like to engender by my writing, you know, is to mm. make people think about. And, and you'll see that in the, even on Band of Brothers, which is a very flag waving patriotic show. The stuff that I wrote, that my contribution to that show is much more intimate about the cost of war than it was, you know, in the, for the rest of the series. Because uh, yeah, that's what I'm interested in. The scenes that you put out, and uh, there's plenty of them uh, throughout that series, but the scenes in particular, uh, I know did you see those... how I did that? Did you see how I did that? Wasn't I that good? It. I got it. I got it. That was beautiful. I'm gonna take. I'm. I'm taking. I'm taking serious notes right now, here, champ. Okay. Don't you. Don't you get this twisted. This is for the show, but this is also for my knowledge. Um, that's the thing, though, with you. Some of the scenes. Um, I was very privileged to be uh, brought onto the HBO Band of Brothers uh, reunion that you guys all did with Neil and a few of the actors and um, that was online. And it was a really interesting experience because I heard some of the actors speak of some of these scenes that you're talking about, about the cost of war and the real reality and the emotional toll and hearing how them how they got to either sit, some of them were uh, privileged enough to sit with those actual individuals who fought and they were they're playing those characters and to see how well you've been able to take the internal cost of war and project it onto a screen so others can feel themselves in it or or feel what that person's feeling you've been able to do it in a way that i feel not a lot of writers can successfully do especially in in a war genre yeah no, it's an act of imagination and empathy, you, you know, and that's what art is. Art is the empathetic act to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, you know, and whether you're a painter or a musician or whatever it is, it's, it creates empathy. And, you know, the key for me on band was I sat with those guys too. And I sat with them, you know, the actors eventually spent probably more time long-term with their particular guys, but I spent time with all of them as much as I could. And um, probably more than, than Stephen Ambrose did. And so, 
um, and a couple of the writers, we just really dug in. And, and the key was to never have any judgment about what they went through and, and to be empathetic, you know, and, and, and they, you know, they began to trust me and the other writers to tell the things that were really painful that they were taught societally not to talk about, which is fear, guilt, shame, you know, all the things that warriors feel in the moment and, and to depict them on screen without judgment. And you're writing well about wars. There's a meta judgment about what you're doing, sort of how you feel about the war and these men that is going to be in your writing. But there's, but you can't do that on the individual acts because you can't, you know, you don't know how you, you would behave in that situation. So, you know, I know, you know, and, and we were careful, of course, we never really, there were some things we didn't depict in the show that were, you know, may not have reflected well on one or another of the men, but. A little um, war crimey, it's you know, fine. Um, we had war crimes in band, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, I know a guy who shot, shot the commanding officer of, of Delta Company in the ass because they didn't like him, you know, so, you know, fragged his own officer. I know who that is, and, and <laughs> you know, I know why he did it. And it's not in the show, you know. So um, he's the same guy, by the way, who would execute SS officers when he found them and cut their fingers off and take their rings and put it on a necklace around his neck. And, you know, in the classic warrior take scalps, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't make any, I have no judgment about it. Right. I know why he did it. And yep. it's a deep, 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 like profoundly, you know, deeper than civilized life warrior thing to do. And to own a piece of the man that you kill and, and to, to take trophies like that. And it's usually depicted as war crimes and people are morally outraged by it. And it's probably a good thing to outlaw it. But we all know why it happens. And, and the reason why it's outlawed is because every warrior thinks about it. So, mm -hmm. you know, so those are kind of the things that you just don't pass judgment on. And you just, you know, you just, okay. And, you know, and, and they begin to trust you. And so they tell you, you know, about the moments that, you know, they're not proud of or that they're, they're about their fear. And, you know, so, um, and once, you know, once, and that's, I guess that was, I would say my, if I had any skill at all, it would be getting this guys to open up emotionally about what it was really like um, and get them to talk, you know, so. Hmm. I think you, you know, it's, it's, it's because you it's exude the the reality that you don't judge and that's i've been in on the other side of you and you don't judge yeah. and that's and that's the truest sense you're you're one of the rare yeah. people when they say i don't judge someone that's I, i've ex, i've expressed that i've felt that with you you don't judge you don't judge anybody you could yeah. say the, the most heinous things and for whatever reason you just kind of go okay yeah no you're curious you're curious why right. did you do that you know and so you have to sort of be a therapist almost and you know, and it's like, how, you, how do you get information out of a serial killer? Well, you don't judge them. You, you, you be curious. Right. And then they trust you. They start to open up. And you, you can have a meta horror at it when you leave the room. But when you're in the room, you know, it's like whatever it is or whoever it is. or You know, and so, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, most people have judgments about men and women now who kill. And, and it's, you know, it is the most prime, it is the one of the two most primal acts, right? Creation and destruction. And, and, you know, so if you're judgmental about it and you're like, well, you killed the man, oh my God. How, and you're, you're sort of like, how did that feel? Like, yeah. you're a bad person. The guy's gonna say, fuck you. I'm just not gonna 
to talk to you because you don't, you know, as opposed to like, you know, wow, what did it feel like? You right. know, and it's like everybody and anybody, anybody who says that they don't think about killing somebody else is a flat out liar, number one. Humans always think about this. So just be honest about it, you know, and so that on, on band was, and I don't know where I got that from. I just don't, I have no idea. But, you know, I developed it on band and, and talked to these guys and got very close to a lot of them. And, and um, you know, so it's, it's, it was a really profound experience for me, actually, and to, you, to talk you, to those guys. And, well, just to be around them, just to, just yeah. to be around them and just hear them talk amongst themselves. I mean, that was a World War, World War II was something that I was so drawn to when I was younger that, and I had no, like I said, I didn't know about any military. It wasn't something that I understood or, or knew anybody spoke about around me. But when Band of Brothers came out, um, <clears throat> my apologies, I was 11. Uh, so I watched it when I became a little older. Um, 9-11 happened and there was something that resonated uh, and hit so hard, not with just the country, but with every person anywhere who watched it. And it and it was the human story and it was the human story and it hit the hardest because of that. But that wasn't the only series and that wasn't the only thing that you did that really went off to be prolific. I mean, you, you did the Pacific like nine years yeah. later. I mean, that's huge as well. Yeah, well, I started working on it 18 months after Band premiered. Oh, wow. And um, it took a long time to get on the air, that one. And, um, you know, and, and it was the, um, it's right in the title. It's an ironic title. And it's the, 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 the Pacific is an anti-war film. It really is. It, the meta judgment is there. There is no good war. There are necessary wars, but all wars are bad. They crush everybody that fights in them. You know, and so Band of Brothers was was a heartfelt um, celebration of Grandpa's sacrifice in World War II, and which was necessary. And it didn't really delve into the darkness of it as much as we could have. I always say, if we'd done the Pacific first, Band of Brothers would have been a hell of a lot darker. Oh, yeah. And because I know I know how dark it was for some of those guys, and we did. That's not what it's in the title. It's about a Band of Brothers. There's nothing ironic about it. It's and which is fine. And it, it was it came along at the perfect cultural moment we had band premiered two days before 9-11 and so and the reviews of band of brothers the first review in the wall street journal was basically i'm paraphrasing was you know tom hanks and steven spielberg play with their gi joes in a sandbox you know it was scathing this is Ooh. a terrible show who would want to watch this what's the point you know that kind of stuff and then it took, and that was their TV critic. And then like a week after 9-11, one of the editors of the Wall Street Journal published an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, watch this show, spanking her own television critics saying this show is very important. And it took off because people wanted to feel good about warriors going to war. They wanted to know what it was like. They wanted to identify, they wanted to feel the sacrifice. And all warrior stories are Christ stories. They're stories of sacrifice, somebody dying for you. And that's a very powerful emotional trope in Western culture, you know, of, of Christ on the cross. And that's what all warriors are. They die for us. They die to protect us. You know, and, and firemen, you know, police officers, the, the, the male image of the protector in, a, in our cultural sort of basket that's 2,000 years old, banned, hit, 
at the right point, you know, and it, and it was done really well. It's a great show, um, but it's not. It's its purpose is different, you know, and it was purpose was to celebrate, and the Pacific's purpose was to warn. It was to warn you, if you do go to war, and it was written, you know, throughout our foray in the war, and it, it influenced all of us of how how hard it is, what it does, how corrosive it is, what it does to the human soul. And, um, you know, what you see a little bit with, like, Neil's character in Band is a guy's destroyed by his, his um, you know, his very complicated moral response to the war. Um, but in, you know, in the Pacific, that's the whole point of the show, and it's in the title. It's ironic, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, it, and it, it's a very different show. It's very, its purpose is different. It's, it's not as sort of commercial entertainment. It's an anti-war movie is what it is. It's intense. It's something that yeah. when you watch, it sticks with you. There's a couple scenes that uh, one in particular, just uh, just the, the there's a scene that's just silent, basically, where someone's sitting there after uh, just drinking a cup of coffee and there's there's no conversation. And I talk about that scene a lot because it's, yeah. I've relived a moment like that I know what that moment feels like. I know what it smells like. I know what it tastes like. I know what the heat feels like. And it is a moment that I struggle to articulate, let alone be able to tell an actor how to go out and act like. It's just not, it's just yeah. not something. And you captured the hell out of it. Yeah, thank you. No, it's true. And the thing that I'm most proud of, um, I mean, I'm, I'm proud of both shows, but in the Pacific in particular is, I've never met a combat veteran who's like, oh, you suck, you know, or you didn't, you know, you got something, you got, th there's a lot we got wrong. Believe me, I could sit here and tell you everything we got wrong. But, but the little things like that, like the cup of coffee scene, one of my favorite moments was a three-star general in the Marine Corps combat veteran coming up to me and saying, I, I don't know how you, you never served. I'm like, nope. He's like, well, how did you, his favorite scene in the Pacific is when the two characters are on the train, Snafu and Sledge, Snafu wakes up and leaves the train when Sledge is asleep and won't wake him up to say goodbye. He says, I don't know how you knew that, but that's exactly what it's like. You do, it's just like it's so painful that we just don't go there. And he says, that's when I knew that, like, like, I don't know how you knew that. And I don't know how I knew that. But that to me is I'm very proud of those little moments, you know, of, of grace that, that warriors go through or, or the, you know, and, and they're, it's not just me. The other writers got them too, and you know we really tried hard to to capture those moments in a way that people like you would recognize this is what it's really like, so that the audience could go, "Oh, that's what it's really." Like. And by the way, I had to fight like a banshee to keep that scene in the series. I, everyone's like, "He would why? Come on!" I'm like, "No, no, he wouldn't." They don't have an imagination. They can't put them. They, they're thinking like like Hollywood version of war, not the real version, you know. So, um, you know, and, and I had to fight for that. So, That's, well, I'm glad that there are, you're. There are a few scenes that are not in the show, by the way, where I fought and lost. Oh. So, but we, you know, I'll, okay, I'll take though. that one as a big victory. So. <laughs> but this has got to have this has got to have some type of toll on you, though, Bruce. I mean, you yourself sitting with these people and absorbing because you are really empathetic for somebody who says you had a, a hair trigger or an anger problem or a frustration 
whatever you learn and develop through sport really did level you out to a point where I wonder if you were able to internalize all of that and it gave you this, this, you know, you turned it into something that could be way more useful to society, which is empathy. But with that comes a ton of responsibility and a ton of weight. And how the hell are you, how, how, how do you deal with hearing these stories all the time in the depths of these it's, stories? It's hard. I mean, it's really, really hard. And, um, you know, the Pacific in particular exhausted me. I was very sick after we filmed it for about a year. Just, it took a huge toll on me. Um, but, you, you know, I, you just, you just, I, I you know, it, it, it takes a toll. And you just deal with it, you know, and you talk about it. And I have a very supportive family. And the toll is one one millionth of what you've gone through or what any other combat veteran goes through. So I don't, you know, it's like, it's, you just, you know, you know what it's like. And, and I have a tiny little sense of what it means to absorb this, you know, and, and then reflect it back onto, onto something that other people can watch. It's a response. It is, you're right. It's a responsibility. And so, I mean, you know, my hat's off to you. It, sh it shouldn't be the other way around. It's, it's, um, you know, it's my burden is bearable. I'm not sure about combat veterans' burdens. So, um, coping mechanisms, you know, tools, my, my, tools my in the toolbox. My, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you know, and and it's it's, you've, I have a very very, you know, you have to have a sense of humor. I think that's one yeah. of the things that, not just you know me as a writer, but um, human beings, please develop your sense of humor, you know, because it's the only thing that keeps us from nuts. But um, no, I, you know, it, it is, I think having a sense of responsibility helps, you know, um, but it was hard. I mean, it was like, it was hard on my family. My wife called the books by the side of the bed, the stack of death. Oh, we got the stack of death, but get the stack of death out of this bedroom, you know, because I mean, just, you know, when, especially in the Pacific, it was like a book after book after book about combat and you know and on killing and all kinds of books about you know so but finally she's like get that fucking stack of books you know out of this bedroom so you know oh, that man. helped it helped to have a supportive mm. spouse and, you know so i had that gentleman on lieutenant uh lieutenant grossman. Uh, colonel grossman he's been on before yeah. we talked about on killing yeah. and we we had those conversations and about a little bit of that and the cultural impact that book has had on um a lot of people, police, people fire, like me, every, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, writers um, using the two it as well. The two most, yeah, the two most important books I read and writing about war were on killing, and the wow. second one was Michael Hare's Dispatches about really? Vietnam. Yeah, and and Dispatches, you know, Michael Hare wrote the uh, the uh, voiceover for Apocalypse Now, and um, Dispatches is the best book I've ever read about the pornography of war. Which I, you know, which I, it's war is pornographic and it attracts young men. It's very, very compelling visually. It's and it's extremely addictive the way that pornography can be, and so and Michael Hare captures it fantastically, and 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 Hollywood captures it too. I mean, there's an element of, and you know, so what separates pornography from, you know, and I was conscious of this on everything I've ever written about war. Am I doing pornography? Is it gratuitous? Am I doing this just to, for male eyeball clickbait? You know, and a lot of people who are attracted to these shows, that's all they care about. So they'll, they, you know, and you'll, you'll know immediately when, what the scenes that they love. You know, it's like, well, you got the tank turret wrong, but, you know, that was a great scene when the, you know, 
Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know, go jerk off somewhere else, pal. Yeah. You know, and, and but Michael Hare captures that and dispatches um, really well. So I'm gonna have to give that a read. I didn't, uh, I haven't read that one yet, but I know, I know what you're speaking of. I mean, right now yeah. when we were talking about Russia, there's there's plenty of groups that are on Instagram, ones that I follow to to get some information about on the yeah. ground, but the northern provisions and all of these. And at the time, they you know they're they're journalists, so they're down there and they're showing videos of real time war crimes, real time slitting yeah. people's throats, and people are on there just eating it alive right now. Yeah, no, it's it's pornography, you know, and it so really is. you know on the Pacific, and we all we did this on Band as well. On both shows, everybody from the top, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks, all the way down to the, you know, to the to the bottom mm -hmm. of the food chain on the production, we had a mandate to make sure that every act of violence had a consequence. And you feel it in the shows. You they they don't they're not just you know like Marvel movies where a million people die in the background. You know, yeah. Um, they, they you feel the violence, and the violence begins to weigh on the viewer as well as. You know, if, you, if we've done our jobs and you, get, you, you begin to understand what PTSD is, for instance, by watching this. You know, and, and one of my favorite things about the Pacific is I, I, the show was watched by a high school history teacher of mine who was a three-tour Marine in Vietnam. He was a forward observer in the Marine Corps and saw a lot, three tours. What does that mean? That means he re-upped, okay? It's like he was a volunteer. So, you know, there's something that, you know, maybe the screws aren't mm -hmm. quite tight up there, <laughs> but a great teacher, one of the best teachers I've ever had. And so I reconnected with him after 30 years, you know, after high school, he went on to teach at the Naval War College at Yale and wow. you know, was a policy planner for the Pentagon and Gulf War One, and did all kinds of really interesting stuff. And I said, well, you watch, you know, watch it and tell me you know, what you think. So of course, you know, the first few episodes is like, well, you got this wrong. The guys are too grouped. They're too close together. And. You know, and I understand you have to do that because it's a frame and you got to put people yeah. in the frame. You know, we got it all. And, and then his, his emails got more and more confessional. And then became, by the end of it, I remember this, I remember that. You know, and at the end of it, he said to me, look, you've done as well as you possibly could to capture the horror and the, and the moral corrosiveness of war. But if you did it really, really accurately, only psychopaths would watch it. You know, because it's that bad. And so, you know, there's an, that, and that's the delicate balance when you write about war is to present it in a way that's entertainment. And what, what that means is not what people usually think it means, but it's entertaining. What does that mean? It means you're morally compelled to watch. It means you're learning something. There's a moral to the story. That's what entertainment is. When it's done commercially, it's, you know, it's, it's, simple and it's easy and it's funny and it's you know but you're still learning something about the the, the movie maker or the writer or the artist or whoever whoever's creating the entertainment has a a moral purpose to it they're trying to tell you how to behave basically no right. matter what the movie is and so but you know so you're drawing them in in a way that that has to be compulsive which is dangerous and so it's a really it's a really interesting balancing act between that and and going to you know doing Pearl Harbor for instance, which is you know I view a a, a piece of pornography, you know so um, or doing it so bad and so gruesome and so horrible, which is accurate that nobody will watch it, you know. So yeah. it's a, it's you know it's tough to get it in the right balance in the right way and. Um, 
you know, and that and that's not and that's just instinct. You don't really. It's like, you know, you can learn how to ski, but once you're a decent skier, what makes a great skier? It's just sort of instinct of how you, you know, how you react to a different slope at a, at a given time, is you know, sort of just the gift of the gods. And and I think all of us on band in the Pacific, the directors, we all recognized that we had to walk that knife, you know, very carefully, knife edge to to make sure that, you know, we didn't go too far one way or the other. Does that, I mean, does that make sense? No, it makes total sense. You walked a, you really did walk a tightrope to make sure yeah. that it wasn't a porn and that it was something that people could, that was truthful enough that people could resonate with and see, but wasn't yeah. so graphic that they were developing nightmares from watching your television series. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah you know, that's a problem. It is a two-dimensional presentation that you have an emotional distance from. But, you know, war itself is a visual medium. It is the greatest, as Michael Harris said, it's the greatest show in the history of the world. It is an aesthetically beautiful thing. It is, a, that's the thing. It is in the moment. It is pornography in real life. It is what draws young men in particular, and I'm sure some young women now, to be a part of something that is spectacular and visually stimulating, that is larger than you, that is organized, in a, in, in a, and it's visually, it's an incredible thing, you know, to see, a rolling barrage of artillery, you know, it, I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's awe-inspiring. And awe is a religious term, you know, it, it, to describe the feeling that you have when you meet God's face. That's, go look up awe. Awe doesn't mean what we think it means in the present. It is, it is a religious connotation of man's response to, to the face of God. And, if, you know, war in its own way is sort of, you know, it is much bigger than we are. We're drawn to things that are bigger than us. It's why we go out on our porch and watch the thunderstorm, you know, and, and so we're drawn to it. And some people run into that and they run into that willingly. And so, you know, it's a really interesting thing. It's, it's a vast human experience that touches every aspect of us that's, you know, um, and, you know, so I, I'm now interested in the back end of it which is why you and I met, is what it does to people and how they deal with it afterwards more than I was, you know, 20 years ago where I was really interested in what it did to them in the moment. How do you kill? What do you do when you kill? How do you feel when you kill? You know, when is it necessary? You know, and, and um, you know, so now it's, it's about how people process it and, and what it does to society. I mean, I'm, I'm really critical actually now of the whole sort of Band of Brothers bandwagon, as it were, which I believe now in the present is a way for particularly young men to buy virtue. Oh, I watched Band 25 times, man, it's fucking great. I'm like, fuck off. Why? Yeah, why like, is it? Why, did you, why, why? Why are you doing this? Right. You know, and you know, a lot of it is bought virtue. I, I, I worry about a society that worships warriors. Respect warriors is different. Treat them well. Don't worship them. Give them health care. Get them, you know, deal with their problems in a way that, that's ethical. And, but sort of this, this, this um, worship, that makes me very uncomfortable. Very, very uncomfortable. Well, you, and, when, you, um, when you have worship like that, you have a following. When you have a following, you have individuals that are willing to do things on behalf of it. It gets dangerous really, really quickly, especially now with access to social media and everything else yeah. that goes with it. People can see every minute of someone's life. I mean, you have individuals who, from the Afghan war, you saw 
you saw, we were in that for so long that we have so many different generations that, that started in that war and that kind of came through and grew up through that war. So now there's this idea of the Navy SEAL, the Army Ranger, and there's, you know, I can't complain. I can't say anything. I wrote a book too. Fuck. And we all have books. Like there's jokes that are made now. No, seriously. I, I, I make this joke often every time I have a Navy oh, SEAL on. I was like, so did you write your book before you joined the Navy SEALs? Or is that something that's just like written in? So like, I, there's these jokes that come out because it's that era. It's that, that conversation that yeah, starts. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. Social no, media. It's, it's, yeah. And it's clear. Social media grew as a as a, a social phenomenon at the same time as the war. So it's, you know, I get yeah. that, and it's that's funny, you know, and, and um, but yeah, it, it's, it, it, I, I am worried about American society becoming more like Sparta and less like Athens, I guess. Yeah. And and you know, we need warriors, and they're important, but so are postmen, and so are good reporters who are trying to uncover the truth, and teachers, and mothers, and truck drivers and you know well, and yeah. there are lots of different ways to serve your society in ways and the ways that are honorable and you know so you don't, you don't want your country permanently militarized you know in a way that that is dangerous and right. i don't think we're there yet but i worry about it and so um you know i always and you know, we the writers who went into band felt a deep sense of responsibility to make the country remember the sacrifice of that generation. We did. We're all everybody wrote in that show. It's kind of funny. We're all extreme progressives politically. All of us are left wing who wrote on Band of Brothers and the Pacific. All of us. People are shocked when they say this. All of us are super patriotic. You can't. Yeah. Nobody can out patriot me just because you wave a flag and you you know. And, and right. um, but, but all of us felt a deep sense of responsibility to make sure the country remembered the sacrifice of that generation. I have a slightly, I, you know, after the Pacific and after, you know, the 9-11, after the wars we've been in, it makes me very uncomfortable. You know, that I know, and this may sound stupid, but it, it preys on me that there's some young kid who watched Band of Brothers, who joined the Army Airborne because of band, who went over to Iraq and is dead. And his mother is grieving his loss because he watched Band of Brothers. You know, and am I responsible for his death? Maybe a little bit. You know, maybe a little bit. And so that's what motivated me to write The Pacific. Is to, okay. you know, to try and deal with my own sense of responsibility for, you know, and I know it's true. I mean, I know a lot of military units play band and motivate them to go into combat. I mean, it's crazy, but... And if it helps them get out safely and do their job, and you know, great. But it's an uncomfortable place to be for me. Well, I can only so. imagine. I mean, you know, you know that, like you said, you know that people watch that. I mean, I don't know that you bear responsibility because I think responsibility at the end of the day lies on the individual. I think that you built something that was so culturally profound that it was bound to have an effect on younger generation. Yeah. But I think you did it and always can know that you did it in a way that held true to what you were trying to do, which was honor and, and tell these stories. And you did it in a way that I think, you know, I'm not in your shoes, so I can't imagine what that feels like. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry that way that you yeah. worry. 
Yeah, well, I'm a worrywart, so yeah, I appreciate that. But. No, but no people ask me that. What's the difference you know, between band and the Pacific? And I tell yeah. that story. Well, in band, you know, SEAL Team 6 played Band of Brothers in a continuous loop in their forward operating base in Afghanistan, and they would just keep watching it over and over again. On the Pacific, I was called by an Israeli journalist who thanked me in tears because her 16-year-old son wanted, desperately wanted to be in, you know, in Israeli special forces, and, and then he watched the Pacific, and, and it changed his mind about his responsibility and what it meant to go to war. Right. Those are the two series in a nutshell, you know, for me. And I, and I think that's, <clears throat> I think that's what's great is you followed up with something that was so morally different. Um, it wasn't a glorification, even though band wasn't, but it wasn't a glorification. It was a, it was the reality as, as real as you could possibly make it. It was the reality of what you were going to be giving your life to. If you made that ultimate decision to go and yeah. fight, well, you better, and like, you better be ready. Yeah. Well, that's it. And I think that's another thing that we've kind of skipped over the past, uh, uh, probably maybe the past five, five to, you know, five to 10 years is as Afghanistan was winding down and as individuals were kind of leaving the military or getting out of the military, there was no longer this understanding of what you were really signing up to go and do. It wasn't the same war as the very, it wasn't, it wasn't the beginning of Iraq. It wasn't Fallujah. It wasn't the first time in Afghanistan. No. It wasn't, you know, it's not the same thing. And so when people started no. to understand, it was almost too late. They were already over there. It was, they signed up, yeah. we did this, and we were already over there. And so they had no real understanding yeah. of what the hell they were getting themselves into, truly. Yeah. No, I agree. And, yeah. and, and then how do you get out of it emotionally when you come back? So I agree 100%. You start a podcast, real, real Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. You start yeah, other things, you. man. You got to do other things or it'll kill you. It'll just eat you alive. You know, I, you know you're right. That's what, you know, I know, I know you reasonably well and your act your whole life since you've been in the, in a war is an aesthetic drive to give structure to your life and create beauty and to process it that's all you can do you know that's and how true. important it is to tell stories you've been telling stories about it you're a storyteller now that's what your I'm, podcast is i'm i'm a storyteller-esque so. You're really the storyteller. I'm just, uh, no. I'm someone who pretends. <laughs> no, I pretend too. You know, we all pretend. Pretending is important. So, I mean, I no, it's, it, it's really, you know, it's important. And so many, you know, it's, it's important for what you're doing is really, I applaud you. It's really, it's great. Well, it's really thank great. you, Bruce. I appreciate that. And I mean, as long as you keep, keep working the way you're working, I mean, you're only going to keep giving you're going to keep giving the next generation the real reality of the repercussions of joining and, and, and involving in a war and promoting war. And uh, so many people ask me now, like, what, do you promote the war? Would you, would, you know, when the war was going on uh, in Afghanistan, do you still think it's the right thing to do? And, you know, it's a very, it's a really hard thing to express to people and articulate, but I think out of anything, I, I, I haven't truly met somebody else like you who can articulate the ways that I feel about it. And so I'm really, um, I'm really grateful that you gave us the time that you did today. This won't be the last time because you're forced into my life, whether you liked it or not now, um, even before this show. So I'm just, uh, I know we'll be having these conversations and I'm, I'm excited to see what you do with uh, my story and other stories. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to see, I think it's called, is it angel warrior? The one you were speaking about at the beginning with the, um, 
yeah, that's going to be a really, yeah. really great one. I'm really looking forward to uh, checking that out when it comes out. But um, what else do you have coming up that you are you want to talk about or anything that you're willing to talk about? Well, yeah, I mean, um, for two years now, almost two years, the entire pandemic, I've been working on a limited series um, and it's bounced around. It was, it was, it was in the Disney universe. Now it's going to be in the Apple universe is to develop a, a limited series, a 10 hour limited series about George Washington's army during the revolution, which most people don't know by the end of the war was about between 20 and 25% African-American black soldiers. And which is a fact that's been buried in American history. And so to tell the story of the American revolution from a black perspective, which is not finger pointing or, you know, it's just about America. And um, I'm really excited about that. It's going to be a really special show because, you know, George, George Washington is the least examined and the least understood of all the uh, founders. And he's probably the most interesting of them all. He's a fascinating character and the men that fought for him. Um, you know, it's really going to be, it's going to be hard to do. Um, and it was a brutal war. That's the other thing is that the American Revolution is our image of it is sort of, you know, quaint guys with, you know, muskets and running around the woods. And it was brutal. And um, it was a civil war. It was brother against brother, father against son, you know, and particularly in New York and New Jersey. And so I'm going to I'm working on that and, and hopefully we can get in the writing room and get the episodes written and get it made. So I'm very, very, very excited about that. Um, I'm also working on a limited series um, about the only all black ranger company in American military history in, in Korea, uh, the Buffalo Rangers, they were called, and um, the second ranger company, who are an extraordinary, and some of them are still alive. I think there's three of them still alive. Wow. It's an extraordinary story. It's never been told. And, and they had black officers. They were thrown into the maelstrom in Korea right after the Chosen Reservoir debacle. I mean, like days afterwards. And, um, you know, were incredible heroes. And one of the greatest and most dramatic military moments in American history that nobody knows about. You know, so to do, again, it's war, but it's a part of the war that people don't know about. You know, and, and, and a group of extraordinary Americans that, you know, in a way to sort of answer the racial tension today about Black Lives Matter in a way that does justice to everyone. We can feel good about these people. And it's not just, you know, finger pointing or, or easy. Hollywood is great at, at trying to feel good about itself, yeah. you know, as opposed to telling the truth. And the truth here is an <laughs> extraordinary group of black warriors who fought for the U.S. Army under extremes. You know, they had two enemies. They had the Koreans and the Chinese. And they had the American army who, mm -hmm. who didn't want to supply them and fuck them on, you know, on weapons and ammo. And they still persevered. And, and a great group of guys, like a band of brothers that came out of the war, really proud of their service. And nobody knows about this. You know, so even people who know the mil military history have never heard of this. So it's like, well, it's time to change that. So I'm hoping that we can get that going and, and um, you know. Amazing, man. Oh, um, I can't wait. Because I know how good you are at what you do. So the fact that you're yeah. you're taking on those projects is why they're going to be not only successful, but they're going to cement their time in history, which is huge. Well, and, also, and then there's your story, which, you know, we we've, we'll do. And, and yep. about the, 
know, women warriors and the cost and get it, get it out there. Yeah, I'm excited. So, that's, uh, that's, yeah, I'm just waiting on ink. Waiting for those, yeah, waiting on the publishing world. Welcome to my world. I hate it. I hate your world, man. Yeah, yeah, I know. We're all vultures. We have to sit around and wait for something to die before we eat. I know. It's so stress. I sit here and I'm just like, how, whose door do I kick in next? Like, what, 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 what do I do? How do I, what do I do? So it's, yeah, I, it's hard. Either way, it's, it, what's that saying? Um, it's worth the wait. When someone's at good, as good at doing what they do, it's worth the wait. You're worth the wait, Bruce. You are. And um, I'm, I'm excited that you're going to tell those stories because it's, uh, I, I know what it feels like when somebody like you comes along and says, hey, I want to tell your story. And that in itself is uh, a massive thing. It means that your service, um, for whatever reason, didn't go unnoticed and it wasn't, um, it wasn't all in vain and that there is there is importance to it in history and it's, and it's take someone like you to portray that properly. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really grateful that you're doing those stories, but I'm, I'm grateful that you're involved in my life and that you gave us some time to kind of pick apart your life and chat about moments in the, some of the biggest shows in history and that are going to stay the biggest shows in history. And they just happen to have you written all over it, everywhere you go. It's very distinct in what you do. And um, I hope you take that as a compliment because it is nothing but, uh, you. yeah, well, you're so you. welcome. Yeah. No. yeah. Cool, man. All right. Well, all right. Well, well, use everyone else. It's Bruce McKenna. You're welcome. And uh, Bruce, stick with me. We'll see everyone else next week.